Good evening, everyone. My name is Don, an alcoholic. I'm not pausing solely in order to give those people a chance to reach their seats. There's nothing I'm going to say that's worth taking notes over. But whatever it is, I'm not going to repeat it. <laughs> so I, Patty talking about stealing stories, that's, that is true. That is how AA was organized and how it has continued. AA has plagiarized from some of the best sources that one can imagine. And we steal from each other constantly until you get to the place you can't even really remember whether it was yours or not. <laughs> One of the reasons that I'm sober today, I was reminded of it. They were telling me that Bobby Earl was going to speak up here if he shows at, at, at some function. And I made one of my relatively infrequent pitches at a AA function up in Eugene, Oregon last weekend, and Bobby was there. In fact, they had four speakers, and they were all from Los Angeles. And hell, we wouldn't even go hear each other speak. <laughs> There's no hiding place. But I used to tell a story about an Eskimo to prove the higher power and everybody talked about Don's Eskimo story and then by God I went out for a couple of drinks and when I came back two years later people were talking about Bobby Earl's Eskimo story <laughs> now I've been telling that story for about eight years and it's just infuriating to lose a story like that because I'd read it in Reader's Digest and it was mine <laughs> So you might just as well stay sober. Although AA has always had strange attribution as far as our quotations and our sayings go. The other day I was, I'd written a decision and I decided to publish it and I wanted to end it with a quote from our book, that portion about the one way to ensure everlasting ignorance is condemnation or contempt prior to investigation. And I was going to use that in this, uh, to close this decision with a, with a strong note. But when you're going to publish, you have to actual, you have to put the actual citation. And so I got out a copy of our book and it said Herbert Spencer. And I thought, that's strange. I wouldn't have thought he would have said such a thing as that. I would have thought that was some British Prime Minister, Desraeli or someone. I, very surprising thing for Herbert Spencer to say. And it doesn't say where it came from, so I called the Los Angeles Library and said, I, this is Judge Gates, I'm going to write a decision. I want to find out where this site came from. They, about two weeks later, they called back and said, we've searched and we've searched, and while it has a familiar ring, we can't find it anywhere in the works of Herbert Spencer. And so I called New York Central Office, and I said, I'd like to know where that quote at the end of our book comes from. And they said, well, that's kind of an odd thing. No one knows. <laughs> so, 
it turns out that in the first book, the first edition, where they had 100 guys sober, a number of them wrote private stories and submitted them, and they kind of cleaned them up a little and printed them, but nobody bothered to check what anyone said. And one of the fellows in his story had made this statement, one way to ensure everlasting ignorance, the bar to all and so on, and he ascribed it to Herbert Spencer. Now, nobody ever bothered to check that. Later, they dropped his story from the book from favor of some newer ones, but they liked that quote so much, they kept it in there. Now, Herbert Spencer never said that. <laughs> Unless, conceivably, it was some guy that this guy knew, a Herb Spencer down at the Fifth Avenue bar. <laughs> That's what Herbie always says. But that is AA, and that's how it works. Nothing that you are going to hear from the podium is going to get you sober or keep you drunk. And therefore, it's relatively easy to speak in Alcoholics Anonymous. I used to get nervous when I spoke. I used to always get nervous. I, I'd done a lot of public speaking, and it wasn't that I was concerned about it. It was simply that... Whenever I got up before a group, no matter whether it was large or small, my hands would tremble. In fact, I'd had to learn to speak ad lib because I couldn't hold notes. They looked like a butterfly on a mating flight, you know. And that's a grave handicap for a trial attorney. Perhaps this will refresh your memory. But I was, after I'd been sober some period of time, I was riding out to speak at Chino Prison with a, another AA, and I was telling him about this trembling hands, and I finished with a slight sob and said, I guess it's just insecurity and lack of self-esteem. Now, I didn't want an answer to the problem. <laughs> this, was, this was my red badge of courage. I, I wanted him to pat me on the shoulder and say, Stout fellow, it is brave of you to carry on with such a fearsome malady. <laughs> but he didn't say anything. You know, and we rode in silence for what seemed an interminable period as I waited for his response. Probably it was 30 seconds, but it seemed interminable. And finally he said, well, I guess you could call it insecurity if you wanted to, or lack of self-esteem, but I suggest to you that if you were to flip the coin over and look at the other side, you'd be facing your big fat ego. He said, the reason you're nervous is because you don't give a goddamn about the people in the audience except what they think of you. He said, we're driving down to speak to a bunch of men who are caged like animals, because they suffer from a condition that you think you may have found some sort of answer to. Now, if you say one thing which helps one guy, you've given a successful AA talk. On the other hand, if you don't say that thing, even though you convince them all that you are a glittering orator, you have utterly failed. Well, I took that like I take all constructive criticism, like a, like a knife right in the back. 
you know, and I quick retracted the blade and looked for some chink in his armor to thrust home. And not finding one, I returned the knife to my back and turned like a pig on a spit for a while. And I thought, by God, he's right. That is the sole reason I'm nervous, is I am concerned what they are going to think of me. You know, and that's why everyone is nervous. There is nothing more egotistical than a shy person. I mean, how egocentric can you be to get out on a ballroom floor and think anyone gives a goddamn about your feet? <laughs> so a person, I, I was telling some person the other day about, it, about the ego, because he'd use that line about, I guess I have low self-esteem, that's the alcoholic problem. The hell it is, it's overweening pride is the alcoholic's problem. We're so goddamn concerned about ourselves, we don't even notice anything that's going on out. You know, you, you're introduced to somebody, you can't possibly remember their name because you're trying to remember which hand to put out and what kind of impression you're going to make. You know, I, I was telling this person this, and they said, well, that, that can't be true of me. I think so poorly of myself. I said, well, I don't, didn't say you thought poorly or well of yourself. I said, you're always thinking of yourself. It doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. <laughs> And so when we got to that meeting, I was so astonished at what this guy had said that I quietly lowered my head to speak to that higher power that I didn't believe was there. And I said, look, fella, for once in my life, let me get up and say something designed to help somebody else without regard to their view of the performance. Please. And I got up there, and for the first time in my life, hand absolutely steady, no nervousness. You know, because, hell, when you're talking to a newcomer in your front room, you don't shake and tremble. Why should you feel any different when you're talking to a hundred? You know, like, good Lord, take this group here. It's impressive standing here, and yet, really, we're all lucky to be outside of an institution, and I'm worried about your opinion of me. <laughs> And so I tried it again. When I, next time I was in a court trial, I slipped down the hall and got into a phone booth, you know, and made a little genuflection and said, okay, fella, let's try her in here. Let me not be concerned about the judge and the jury and the audience and the bailiff. Let me just go in and tell the unvarnished truth to the best of my ability and let everybody else do their duty. And by God, it worked in there. No more shaking, no more trembling. <laughs> Most amazing thing I ever saw. And it's continued on all these years. The only time I ever get a mild case of it is when I'm trying to impress somebody. And then it comes back again. See, it's almost impossible for me to say to myself, stop being insecure. Hell, that just makes me feel more insecure. <laughs> but it is quite possible to say, stop being proud. Stop being so goddamn egotistical that when you trip and fall or stumble, look like a horse's ass, that you're mad when people laugh. You know, you've ever walked down the street and you come across a curb and you trip, oh, you, you, you catch your bounce, you look around, you hate everybody within eyesight. <laughs> and that's where our higher power comes in, really. For over 20 years now, I haven't made the slightest mistake. <laughs> the, the smallest faux pas. 
the slightest deviation from the road of valor. On the other hand, God has seen fit to do through me some of the most stupid, petty, vicious, lurid, lewd, selfish things that you can imagine. But if it gives him pleasure to make me look like a horse's ass, who are you to criticize? <laughs> the other speakers get up here and say that what they say is their own opinion. That's not true with me. I took the third step. I turned it over. What I say is the word of God, and you better listen up every goddamn one of you. The only thing is he keeps changing his message all the time. <laughs> so what I say is not representative of Alcoholics Anonymous, not even of a man in full possession of his faculties necessarily, but it will be my views on this occasion subject to change without notice. See, I've been speaking in Alcoholics Anonymous longer than I've been sober. When they did that routine about to stand up, I damn near stood up twice uh, because I had a terrible time when I first came around the program. I used to... I, whenever they play that game, I have to stop and reflect because once you decide you're going to be sober the rest of your life, seniority doesn't mean quite the same thing as it does. I used to count my birthdays. One, two, one, two, one, two. I, you know, I could not get through that damn third year. I had trouble with the program, and they'd say, Don, you've got to get more active. Work with the newcomers. And I would drag them off the bar stools, ready or not, and I'd still have trouble. And then they'd say, you've got to get into the spiritual part. And I would pursue God up and down the byways of the San Fernando Valley, and I'd still have trouble. And they'd say, well, you've got to get into the inventory. And so I would put on hip boots and rod and reel and go up in my psych stream of consciousness, and I'd still have trouble. And then one day I decided to quit drinking. And, uh, no trouble since. And that is your misfortune, really, because I was listening to a tape I made uh, just before my last slip, and it was a beautiful talk. God, it was inspiring. There was so much insight in there. I traced our indebtedness to Jung, discussed the psychiatric overtones, brought us down to the Oxford movement and William James. Uh, God, really, if I could have stopped drinking, it would have been a wonder in our time. There was something there for everyone. And now I know so little about AA and so little about alcoholics in general that I really could give you the sum and substance of what I truly know in very, just a few minutes. The rest of this is filler, which by the way is true of all AA talks. That's why I don't worry anymore about what I say. I, the main thing is something happens when we band together in these rooms that doesn't happen, or at least infrequently happens, on the outside. We're here to mass produce miracles. And it happens in these rooms. So the audience comes into this, and the speaker comes here, and his duty is to, his obligation, his point, I assume, is to try to kind of really hold the audience's attention for the requisite period and perhaps get them to come back the next meeting. So I come in, I wave my arms, I open my flyer, whatever is necessary <laughs> to hold them, and they'll come back, you know, what the hell is that all about? I, you know, uh, because what I, I know now that what I say is not that significant. Alcoholism today seems to me the simplest disorder ever to have afflicted mankind, the most easily recognizable, identifiable, and treatable. You know, the very name gives you a marked clue as to what the problem is. <laughs> 
Now, seriously, assume you were not handicapped with a degree in psychology. <laughs> what the hell do you think causes alcoholism? <laughs> Alcohol? Right. <laughs> yeah. Now, if, on the other hand, you have been educated beyond your intelligence, the chances are you're going to come up with some strange guesses. Bowel movements. Failure to close an Oedipus Triangle. Decline of modern religion. The decadence of petty bourgeois capitalism. I, well, who knows? And in some quarters, the only thing that isn't yet suspe suspect is flip. And yet, if there was no alcohol, there would not be one alcoholic identifiable as such in the face of the earth. Because our book tells us the one thing we have in common, the only thing we have in common, one with each other, that we do not share with the rest of mankind is the phenomenon of craving that results from taking the first drink. Other than that, nothing. There, it isn't our emotions. It isn't our psyches. There have been no new emotions invented in the last ten millennia. You have no emotions that the non-alcoholic doesn't have. If you wake up in the middle of the night feeling inadequate and uncertain, that's not because you're alcoholic, it's because you're a human being with some perception of your own limitations. Everybody, Caesars and the Pharaohs, I'm sure, awoke in the middle of the night and thought, who am I fooling with this stupid Laurel Risu? <laughs> I'm no Caesar, just an Italian boy trying to get by. <laughs> we have the phenomenon of craving results in taking the first drink. That's it. Nothing to do with our emotions. We have, and the fact, the strange and horrible, frightening thing is to think that there are nine people exactly like each one of us out there who are non-alcoholic. And they're going to stay that way. They will never have to change. See, we have psychotics in here, of course. Why should they get off any easier than the rest of us? <laughs> one in ten is going to be an alcoholic. One psychotic in ten is going to be an alcoholic. Our book tells us that we have sociopathic inferior, psychopathic inferior, sociopaths in here. Why not? One in ten sociopaths are going to be an alcoholic. We have neurotics in every hue on the emotional spectrum. One in ten are going to be in here. We have people normal in every respect, our book tells us, except the effect of alcohol it has upon them. No, but it, our book says that there are those two who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders. Now, if that's used in the way ordinary English is used, it means the vast majority do not. There are those two who do, but most don't. But even they can stay sober. In fact, the really sick ones, if they do stay sober, they usually become leaders, gurus, teachers, <laughs> committee men. But it's not mandatory, main speakers. <laughs> But it's not mandatory. I hear people get up and flagellate themselves with their own inadequacies till there isn't a shred of flesh left on their back at the end of their pitch. Now, they know themselves better than I do, so I, you know, maybe that's right. But it isn't mandatory that you be crazy to go on this program. No handicap, but it's not mandatory. We haven't had ten people walk on the face of the moon yet. Two of them are already in AA. <laughs> check those guys fairly close. If they're not wired well, they're not going to be up there. <laughs> you 
you know, sometimes they use the word normal in reference to the non-alcoholic, implying not merely that they are in the statistic majority, meaning the 9 out of 10 who are not alcoholic, having the phenomenon of craving, but they imply that they are well-adjusted, happy people whose lives are planned, programmed, and well-developed according to those plans. Now, anybody who thinks the non-alcoholic world and the members of it has well-organized, planned, and happy lives has not watched a TV show, a news broadcast, read a newspaper, or for that matter, even looked out the window in a long, long time. <laughs> the non-alcoholic world is crazy. Stark, raven, mad, crazy. And they never have to change. <laughs> they never have to change. I watch them downtown, you know, where I work, walking around their knuckles, white, their jaws tense. <sighs> Gonna get even, paying back, protecting, defending the Constitution. <sighs> Gonna get that bitch on the stand, make her admit she's an unfit mother right in front of the children. <laughs> They're crazy. They don't want justice. They want blood. They never have to change. Never. All those dubious luxuries of resentment and self-pity that we have to give up, they don't. Nobody gets arrested for driving while pissed off. Nobody's ever been booked for being a common mope. Whining and disorderly. <laughs> you get picked up for being drunk. And as a result of that, in order to avoid being drunk, it is necessary for us to change those things in our lives which have destroyed the lives of goddamn near everybody who possesses them. And that includes most of the non-alcoholic world. They're weird out there. How'd you like the Falkland Islands? Two great nations going to war over a frozen stone. And as far as we know, both sides were sober. How do you like Beirut and Lebanon as an example of three great religious movements getting together to peaceably solve a problem? Now, A is a series of islands, an archipelago of sanity in a lunatic world. We're so damn blessed to be in here. And most of us would not have come had we not been goaded by booze. Hell, most of us wouldn't cross the street if it would make us feel better. I wouldn't give them the satisfaction. <laughs> but that's what alcoholism is. It's a phenomenon, a craving, a result from taking the first drink. And if you got it, you're stuck with it. You know, and yet, despite all the people who bounced up and down, I'll, I'll bet you there are people right here tonight who are wondering if they're really alcoholic. You know, sitting, I, people sit in meetings, wonder if I'm really alcoholic, as if their opinion meant a crap. <laughs> well, in other words, what the hell difference does a diabetic's view of his condition have to do with it? Is your opinion of hemorrhoids significant? <laughs> you either have it or you don't. And what the hell you think about it is totally irrelevant, except insofar as it determines how you may die whether chewing your tongue or leaving, leading a relatively happy and constructive life. And that's a choice that means very little except to you. You know, we're, hell, as I mentioned before, it's the non-alcoholics that are the danger. We don't represent any danger to society. 
Oh, I mean, we bloody the highways and ruin the lives and break the hearts of everybody we come in contact with, but we're no danger to Western civilization. We're not that well enough organized. <laughs> you know, and, and it's so easy... To, and, and yet the people who sit there, utterly immaterially worrying about whether they are or aren't, it's so simple to determine it. One question answered honestly will tell anybody with such a doubt whether they're an alcoholic or not. If there's anyone here tonight, just let them ask themselves this one question and answer truthfully. Am I now, or have I ever been in attendance at an AA meeting? That's your answer. <laughs> Non-alcoholics don't come to AA. What the hell would a non-alcoholic come to an AA meeting for? Like a virgin going in for a rabbit test. <laughs> Absurd in the history of this organization. We never had any non-alcoholics come in here. What the hell would they come in here for? You're here, you're an alcoholic. Sometimes people say you're not supposed to tell newcomers that, but why? If they're as smart as I was when I got here, they've got more drinking to do anyhow, so they may as well take a good message to jail with them. I mean, why lie about it? <laughs> and the solution to the problem is equally simple. You don't drink anymore. There's nothing mysterious about that. You know, I've known people who are just physically alcoholic. Just pure physical alcoholics. They didn't need, they need for our program. Hell, they didn't drink. I remember working on a railroad one time, and they have a rule called Rule G, which says if you're drunk on the job, you're subject to being immediately fired. It was a holiday, and I had a jug with me, and so I offered this fellow a drink, and he said, no thanks, and I thought, uh-oh, company think. I said, look, the fellow, I offered you a drink. Why won't you drink with me? And he said, well, I, it, I'm nothing against it. Go ahead, uh, fine with me. He said, I, I tried it when I was younger, and Jesus Christ, I... I know what the hell I was going to do. Sometimes it was fine, sometimes it was just disastrous. I was like an Indian. I'd just go wild sometimes. I said, listen, fella, I ask you a fair question. I'd like a fair answer. That happens to me all the time. Now, why won't you take a drink? <laughs> a person who was just physically alcoholic would have stopped it years earlier. Would any of us pursue any substance that we could consume which would do to us Twice what booze has done to us 200, 2,000 times. I never planned to be an alcoholic. I never walked into a counselor's office and said, I think I'd like to major in vomiting, <laughs> perhaps with a minor in diarrhea. <laughs> I never planned an evening the way it went. Now, I hear people get up and say, I can't blame the things I did while drinking on the booze. And I always think, oh, you poor SOB. Jesus, that must be hell. I sure can. Good Christ, I didn't plan it that way. You know where the word intoxicated comes from? It comes from the word toxic. Now, a toxic substance is a poisonous substance. That's why it's called that. Toxic means poisonous. And you put enough of a poisonous substance into your body, and alcohol, except in very tiny quantities, is poisonous to the system, and you become intoxicated, to wit, poisoned. And then with poison senses of sight and sound and smell, you look out and see the world as the world is not. And then with poison mental capacities, you draw illogical conclusions from this false data. And then with your inhibitory factors blinded, you proceed to act on it. In other words, every evening 
But I drank. Sometime during the evening, booze would say to me, Don, why don't we? And I'd say, that sounds reasonable. You know, I'd go off and do the dumbest things. Absolutely inane. I never had an evening go the way I wanted it to. Why, you know, I mean, maybe an evening of a... Not, I don't even think that's quite... I don't know that I... I never said to myself, for example, well, let's see, it's Friday night. What will we do? I got about a pint here in the house. I think I'll kill that and then go out and total a car. Uh, I just canceled the insurance in order to save money, so that'd be a good start. On the way to the hospital, with any luck, the ambulance intended to roll me. I'll have no identification. End up down in general for 24 hours. But I can cuff another jug on the way home, and I'll terrorize the wife and children all day Sunday. That sounds like a pretty good deal. That's it. Let us get her on. See? Now, it must be self-evident that I'm far too sophisticated, debonair, urbane to do a thing like that, but it happened to me. That's really why I don't tell drunkologues much anymore, is that they don't describe what I did. They describe what happened to me. I knew those damn things. They just happened to me. When I drank, I was truly a slave to the booze. When I uncorked a bottle, a genie came out. Except instead of my telling it what to do, it told me what we were going to do. Somebody said, why don't you talk about your drinking? You know, I don't usually talk about drinking. Maybe I did last time I was up here. I can't remember. I had no particular pitch, as I warned you earlier. But uh, they said, why don't you tell something about your drinking? As if a man is going to get up and say he's an alcoholic and lie about it. You know, this idea of qualifying is absurd. I mean, we've gained a lot of stature. There's no question about that. The last few White Houses have had at least one member among them. But it isn't still something that you would lie about in order to get ahead. <laughs> and so if a guy gets up and says he's an alcoholic, I believe him. I mean, it's like somebody says, I have a social disease. I don't say, take it out and prove it. So, uh, <laughs> but I will tell you one story, only to, if, if maybe I told the last time I was up here, I don't know, I haven't a long time, but somebody reminded me of it earlier. But it it was, it was significant to me, and I used it as an example, not of a particularly important aspect of drinking, except it marked a slight turning point. In my early drinking, I used to be concerned because I would get into conflict with other people. And whenever you do that, the other people are to some extent also in the wrong. And therefore, you're able to rationalize it and justify it if you take it one incident at a time. You know, if he hadn't have made the left turn, I wouldn't have hit him. Which is true, but if I hadn't been smashed, I'd have seen he was making the left turn half a block earlier, you know, an unguided missile coming down the street here. Or if he hadn't have said what he said about our beloved president, I wouldn't have a broken nose. Which is also true, but if I hadn't have been under the weather, he might not have made his point so tellingly. But I could always justify each individual one by blaming it on somebody else. It's hard to come into conflict with society without society joining in. But then this one incident happened, and as I say, I used it merely as an example, because I, I drank primarily to relax. And on this particular occasion, I've been relaxed about four days. And I awakened, it turned out, to be in the wee small hours of the morning, from a dream of hellfire and damnation with imps of the perverse and Dante's Inferno, 
and I was drenched with perspiration. And I staggered up and discovered that I had passed out. Uh, I had nodded off <laughs> on the couch. Apparently, the family had retired some hours or days earlier. And I wondered what the hell was wrong with me. I, I thought maybe this booze is getting to me. Until I noticed that there on the couch was a thin, small spire of smoke coming up from a tiny hole. And then I realized what had happened was I had apparently nodded off with a cigarette in my hand, which had fallen on this couch and burnt through the outer covering down into the matting, where lacking oxygen enough to take flame, it slowly produced embers as charcoal type until it covered the whole bed, until it covered the whole couch. And then I realized there was nothing wrong with my drinking. I had simply been barbecued. <laughs> I was lying on a bed of fire. Seeing that everything was all right, I then moved to take care of the condition, and I got a large pitcher of water and came over and tried to pour it in that little hole. <laughs> now, all that achieved, and would have achieved even had I been steadier, was to produce a rather remarkable cascade on the rug. And so I knew more stringent measures were required, and I went into the kitchen, came back with a butcher knife, slashed the couch from one end to the other, laid it open, exposing the embers, and then doused them with the cooling balm of the water. And it did subdue them. But on the other hand, it also filled the room with acrid black smoke. It's funny, even to this day, I can remember standing there with my eyes watering and looking down at that slashed and sodden mass and realizing that almost to a certainty my wife was going to notice it. <laughs> She was a sharp-eyed woman there. There was little that passed her ken, I'll tell you. And sometimes, in those moments, she would forget herself and say things that she would later regret. I mean, she was a good woman who didn't want to assault her husband's masculinity, but on the other hand, she would, in time, some like that, relapse, as it were, and, and say things that were unkind. <laughs> like, uh, you drunken son of a bitch, you did it again. Uh, I mean, that sort of thing. And then she would feel remorse, and I wanted to spare her that. Uh, uh, and I thought, what'll I do? I, well, I'll just get the goddamn thing out of the house. You know, out of sight, out of, she might vaguely remember there'd been something on that side of the room, but, but out of sight, out of mind. The only thing is, it is not quite as easy to move a bed couch after four days of drinking. You should be in a hospital, instead you're going to move furniture. But with that Herculean strength that comes only to the panic-stricken alcoholic, I somehow managed to get it onto my shoulder and head it out the front door. Now, we lived at that time on a second-floor apartment and had a tiny balcony with pillars on it, I remember. I, I damn near beat myself to death, caroming around. Bang, 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 bang. But ultimately, I made the turn and got down into the patio, and foresight was not my strong point at that moment. I hadn't really realized how few places there are to place and conceal a couch in an apartment patio. And so I'm standing there, legs trembling, and I remember...
remembered a creek about five miles away. <laughs> so rather than heading to a sanitarium where I belonged, I, I staggered to my car and threw the couch up on top of it. And then got in and proceeded to drive to this creek. Now, all I ever sought in drunkenness was dignity. I had no great quarrel with disaster as long as I could face it with dignity. And yet, by this time, it was 6, 37, I don't know, it was daylight anyhow, and there were people standing at the bus stops with briefcases and lunch pails and so on. I have no idea how they can stay up that late, but they were, they were out there. And as I drove down the street, I watched their heads turn to follow me. Eyes as wide as their mouths. And I thought, by God, it doesn't take much to draw a crowd in California. Until I chanced to pass by an auto dealership that had a dusty window that acted like a mirror. And I got a glimpse of what they were looking at. Here was a guy, Natalie attired in a bathrobe, with about a four and five day growth of beard. And on top of his car, he had a couch which previously had lacked oxygen sufficient to take fire, but now driving down the street like a billows, the wind was going through it and the flames were 30, 40 feet in the air. drinker, too, by the way. <laughs> but for the life of me, when I ultimately disposed of it and got back to the house, I could not think of any way in the world to blame this incident on my sleeping wife and children whose lives I had imperiled. It was nobody's fault but my own, and God damn it, that was the first time I think it began to hit home to me. I continued drinking, obviously, for a long time, because our book doesn't say we quit drinking because we're alcoholic. In fact, our first step doesn't say anything to do with about being, admitting you're an alcoholic. It says you admit that you are powerless. Hell, I knew I was an alcoholic. I read the AA book 10 years before I quit drinking. That just explained why I drank the way I did. I had the phenomenon of craving, but in those days I was not powerless. I could determine how long it, take, it took to get on one and how long it took to get off. And if you can determine your drunks, you're not yet powerless over it, alcoholic though you be. In other words, I'd come out of a courtroom and somebody would say, hey, what a tough day we had, Don. Why don't we stop and have a couple of beers? I'd check my watch and say, well, I can't. Today's Tuesday. I have to be back on Thursday. <laughs> they look at you rather strangely, but uh, if, you can, if you can wait until after you've done what you have to do and then tie on a good one, maybe a stupid waste of time and money, but you're not yet powerless. Ultimately, of course, as being a progressive disease, you get to where you can't wait. And when you get on one, you can't stop. I drank more liquor tapering off than I did drinking. <laughs> Ultimately, I got so damn bad I wasn't even getting into trouble. 
How much trouble can you get into in a hotel room with a bottle of wine and a copy of Playboy? <laughs> the maid doesn't step on you, you're reasonably safe. Yet you're dying in there. You know, alcoholism is goddamn it. I'm sure grateful to be with, but it's tough. Game you can't win, can't break even, you can't get out of. <laughs> I saw a picture on our public broadcasting system down there in L.A. a while back of one of those nature studies, and there was a wolf. He was caught in a trap. He was jerking his arm with the damn or his hand in his paw at the thing, and the blood was running down. You know, he was terror-stricken, pulling at it, trying to break free, and, and finally leaned over and started eating his own hand off. And I identified with him. Identified with him. Boy, that's what it's like in the terminal stages. And when you ultimately break free of it, realizing in the full intensity what it is, what a rejoicing. Now, that isn't the way the newcomer feels about it, usually. Newcomer thinks, oh, no more fun. A walk down a dark tunnel, never broken by the light of a party. <laughs> a dull climb up the arid mount, carrying my cross of sobriety. And it's not like that at all. It's exactly the opposite. For the first time, you're free. And if you can learn to live without chemical courage, what a treat it is. You will come to actually, like that old spiritual, rejoice in the idea of free at last. Free at last. Great God Almighty, we're free at last. Because now we can do anything we want. It's like some God set forth a feast of experience, sensual, intellectual, emotional, in front of us and said, take what you want and then pay for it. <laughs> and that way you find out whether you enjoy it, whether you want to repeat it. Drinking, you never find out. Keep repeating the same goddamn things over and over and over again. Because booze or any of the other better living through chemistry that's available nowadays <laughs> breaks the chain of education. We all learn through the pain-pleasure principle. It's how children are taught. It's how we train animals. Do something that is wrong, experience pain. Do something that is right, experience pleasure. Booze and all its associated drugs break that. We take a shot of these things, and we get instant pleasure that we did not earn. It does not stem from any merited effort. And therefore, we feel guilty about it. And when we do something rotten, miserable, we don't feel the pain, because we get smashed. So we don't learn. Hell, when I got here, of course, I thought I had terrible, disturbed psyche. I'd been twisted as a young sapling and grown into a gnarled old oak and all this and that. It wasn't so. All of my inventories have shown me that the only real thing wrong with me was that I started drinking as an adolescent. And adolescence being a form of insanity, <laughs> and alcohol being a great preservative. You drop a specimen in alcohol, you come back 20 years later, it's still there. You drop alcohol into an adolescent, come back here 20 years later, he's still there. Maybe he's grayed and wrinkled, vocabulary has increased. But emotionally, still enough. <laughs> and adolescence is so horrible. I always feel such pity when I see young people. It's a condition that can be outgrown, but God, it's horrible. You have to 
worry about what people are thinking about you and you've got to protect your image and if somebody says I can whip your ass you've got to take off your coat and let them do it <laughs> it's a terrible thing all of my kids you know passed through it now and it was a, I looked at their suffering and they're totally inarticulate they're going through a pain beyond description and they can't even describe it because they're they have no words I remember my daughters would come home from school and say, <laughs> and I'd say, what's wrong, honey? There's that boy in school. What did he do? He looked at me. <laughs> what do you mean, looked at you? How did he look at you? You know, funny. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And when my sons, the Greek gods, built like Adonis, they get a pimple on their face and their life is destroyed. And they can't communicate. They have no experience with which to judge their condition, even if they had words to put it into, and they have no words. Oh, I, occasionally they'll put a few grunts together, and often they record them and play them on radio real loud, you know, <laughs> uh, primordial grunts, but they don't signify anything of any sense. But that's when I started drinking. That's a terrifying condition, adolescence. That's when sex rears its head. Right at the time that we begin drinking, most of us begin to get interested in the opposite sex or in the same sex. Either way, it's very confusing, very frightening. I, I remember to this day my first sexual experience and how terrifying it was. And I was alone at the time, too. <laughs> I'm going to be dignified. <laughs> but it is true. It's one of the things you're going to have to learn to do sober. But what happens when you come on the program, in most instances, is that you merely complete your educational process. You grow up. Someone once said the most difficult part of adolescence is to bring it to a close before you're 40. <laughs> and if you continue with the chemicals, you ain't going to make it. Now, the solution to the problem, and the problem, remember, is not the physical part. Because, hell, you have no problem with alcoholism if you don't drink. Nothing mysterious about stopping drinking is simply controlling the movement of your elbow. Nobody's going to put it in your mouth. If you can do this upon command and cease upon command, you're capable of eternal sobriety. There may be people so far gone that their arm reaches out spastic-like and hurls things through their mouth. <laughs> Assume you can fend it off. Sobriety is yours. The only thing is you're not going to want to do it if you are the type that is not like that one that I mentioned on the job because we have something else. And our book tells us exactly what that is. It has nothing to do with mental health. Every drunk I ever started, I was cold sober. And the craziness that we describe, the insanity, is not legal or medical insanity. It is the insanity that leads us to go back and take that damn first drink thinking this time it's going to be different, despite the unbroken accumulation of evidence that that ain't so. Our book tells us exactly what they mean by insanity because it says we will know that we are restored to sanity when, not when our lives are in order, not when our jobs and homes are secure, 
No, we will know we are restored to sanity when we recoil from the first drink as from a flame. That's all they were talking about. And our program is as simple as the disease. We have a chapter in our book which has an equally subtle caption, and it's read like the Chinese water torture at every meeting, how it works. <laughs> now, if you're truly intellectual, you won't hear that for months. It's too simple. It was called the psychodynamics of permanent aridity. You might listen to it, but how it works, it can't be that easy. But they mean it. Twelve simple steps, written in concise and direct English. There is no way you could become confused about those steps or their operation unless you went to a step study meeting. <laughs> Remember, they were written when Bill, the author, was only sober less than four years. Most of us wouldn't pay a hoot in hell what a four-year-old thinks about much of anything. And yet that's how much he had and he wrote the book. Everybody else said one year. And they said, these are the steps we took. Assume they weren't lying to us. When did they take them? Now, they may have lied. What the hell? A lot of mendacity around Akron and Cleveland in those days. But assume they weren't lying. When did they take them? They took them all in the first year because that was all the time they had. They didn't know anything about long-term sobriety, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. They knew nothing about gurus. They knew nothing about people who can lead the multitude, can't find their ass with either hand, but can straighten out babies by the mass. They didn't know. Bill went into a... One of the reasons we haven't yet canonized Bill is he kept writing about himself. He tells us about how he went into an eight-year depression, two of which were suicidal. And this was on the road of happy destiny. How does that grab you, newcomer? <laughs> But those steps do it. They relieve the second part of our disease, which is the only part that can be relieved, and that is the obsession. And the book tells us exactly what that is. The great obsession of the abnormal drinkers that somehow, someday, will control and enjoy his drinking. Persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. And that's true. 19 out of 20 still do. Statistics haven't changed. We don't keep them in AA because here's an even money bet. You either will or you won't. That's entirely up to you. Nobody's ever taken those steps and failed, in my experience. Now, of course, people obviously get drunk after long periods, but that's because the last three are maintenance steps. You take the first nine and the last three repeat them. It's like pedaling a bicycle. It is impossible for those two thin little wheels to stay erect. And yet you watch it being done, and pretty soon you believe it and you try it, and you too achieve that wondrous moment of balance, something that can't be described any more than this program can be described until you've done it. But you've got to keep pumping. It doesn't matter how good a cyclist you are, what hills you've prevailed over, what speeds you've attained, you stop pumping, momentum ends, the magic ends, and you fall. But that doesn't mean bicycles don't work. People get drunk in this program. That doesn't mean a program. The miracle is not that somebody like, gets drunk. Hell, I've heard people come in and say, you hear about John, sober eight years and got drunk. How could, how could he have done it? That isn't the natural condition of the alcoholic is drunk, scared, frightened, running, lying, cheating getting ready for the next one, justifying, catching up. From time immemorial, there's been no answer to it. We really should rush into the meeting and say, hear about George, he's still sober, seven years. You know? <laughs> a friend of mine, I did like him. He, he did get drunk after about that time. When he came back, I, I sort of liked him for it. People rushed up to him and they said, Fred, what happened? What got you drunk? And he said, whiskey. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it is a wild and exciting time. It isn't like the newcomer fears. This is going to be the most exciting time in your life if you have the courage to live. And go out and do it, because now for the first time in your life you can do anything you ever wanted to do. Pay for it, of course. But try her. See, this program is not one of elimination. It's a program of substitution. It gives us the ability to do anything we ever wanted to do. As far as I know, I've done everything I ever wanted to do, everything I ever fantasized about. I have now tried on this program. And I've had some strange thoughts. Delirium is a disease of the night. And I can come up with some wild ones. But it doesn't matter. If we were prevented from doing anything by our program, we'd probably have to get drunk if it was a significant thing. See, this allows us to live. And I've had a wild and exciting life because that is what I really want to do now, is live. I think the thing I hate most about my drunkenness as I look back on it, apart from the pain and suffering I caused others, is the waste of it. The absolute goddamn waste of it. As far as we know, we only get one trip on this little blue-white globe we call the Earth. Only one go-round, so far as man has ever been able to prove. With 70 years allotted to us, three score and ten, multiply that by 365. What do you get? 25,000 days, more or less. If you had $25,000, I doubt you'd take them, wad them up by the handful and throw them down the toilet and flush them, even though you can get money back. But those priceless days you can never get back, they're the only ones that will ever exist in this miracle of life, and I used to take them by the day, by the week, by the month, by the goddamn year, sodden in drunkenness, hungover, sick, locked up like an animal, or resentful, hostile, building a case to justify the next one. Christ, I really hate that. I still do it sometimes. Still get myself mad and filled with resentment, blow a whole day. I can never get back, but I don't want to do that. I want to live. I want to know all about it. Hell, it may not be that my program is so good, and maybe I'm just getting old. I don't have that many days left. You know, youth doesn't concern itself with that. Youth is immortal. One of my sons one time said to me, you know, Dad, if I should ever die, I said, what the hell do you mean, you punk? Not a hypothesis. I want to try it all. And it isn't all going to be fun. Most of it will be. A lot of it will be just tranquil. Not boring, not dread deadening ennui, but relatively tranquil because things aren't exciting all the time. And when you're new, it, hell, you hear new speakers get up and, oh, I smelled the grass and I saw the sky and I went to work. After you've been sober about 20 years, that ain't going to get it. I mean, it, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't bounce out of bed and say, oh, joy, another day in the pits. <laughs> you know, uh, Most of it will be tranquil. We will earn our daily bread, we will pay our way in our society, and we will experience all the things that flesh are heir to. People are still going to reject us, people are going to die on us, tragedies are going to befall us, illness. No two-legged beast ever, ever came out of the forest got through life unscathed. Why the hell should we? It's all going to happen, but most of it will be delightful, because you won't be trying to arrest your wolf in the universe, and you can try anything you like. A guy said to me a while back, said, Don, you seem to be more ebullient and happy in your sobriety. Why is your program better than mine? I said, I really doubt that it is. Maybe I just live a richer life. Have you tried learning to fly since you've been sober? He said, no. Yes, I did. Hell, first few years of sobriety. 
But I learned how to fly. Went to an old anachronistic flight school up the Whiteman Airport there, and so uh, it took three hours of instruction and soloed. You know, I'm fast. I didn't know a goddamn thing about it. The airplane didn't even have the instruments, but I took it that weekend, flew up to San Francisco from Los Angeles. You know, I didn't know anything about navigation or radio. I just looked down at Highway 101. <laughs> flew over and under the Golden Gate Bridge. I didn't know you weren't supposed to do that. I said, have you tried scuba diving? He said, no. I said, I did that. No, I never, you're supposed to take lessons. Hell, the first time I ever had this junk on, the suits and the tubes and the and all that crap, was out right off Catalina Island. You know, I, I, they knew, whoever asked me knew I wouldn't go to take lessons. I'm one of those fast studies. Hum a couple bars, I'll pick it up. You know, I put the stuff on, jumped in. It was wonderful. I remember swimming down there 50, 60 feet among all of the tubular growths and the fish. And I, I was down there so long I ran out of air. <laughs> I, I know how long I was supposed to be there. I put my higher power to the test, I'll tell you. I took my first free fall parachute jump just before I became a grandfather. Got through the male menopause, racing motorcycles in the desert with Steve McQueen. The only copies of the big book they used to see out around Barstow some Sundays. <laughs> Smoked three to four packs of camels a day for 35 years until a doctor gave me a mantra to repeat, emphysema. I asked this guy to quit smoking. He said, no. I said, that was, <laughs> that was going to be something to curl your hair, fell. Because uh, I knew I was going to die smoking. I mean, some of my friends would stop, but I knew I'd die. That way. I'd probably take a couple of tokes posthumously. I could see him closing the casket saying, would you put that out? We're trying to have a dignified ceremony. <laughs> but when you get to the place where you have to choose between smoking and breathing, it's the simplest thing you've ever done. Get on your knees and bark like a dog for a month, but otherwise it's nothing. <laughs> And then they told me to get into running because I had to rebuild myself. Christ, if I'd have been asked to write the ten most reprehensible things in the world, running was so far down on the scale I wouldn't even have thought to put it in there. That's a punishment for Christ's sakes. When I was in sports, they used to make you run laps if you goofed off in training. You double-timed in the Army if you got demerits. You know, now I'll go out and do it voluntarily. All my life I've seen old men running along the highways with sweatbands and gnarled knobby knees like tree trunks. And I'd look at them and think, poor pathetic devils, but it should come to that. <laughs> be a fanatic is anybody who's doing something a week before I start. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm one of them. I remember when the craze started and they said, right in my neighborhood they began running ten years ago, whenever it was. Right in my neighborhood, you know, hairy people usually. And, uh, I'd look at them and think, Christ, I hope they don't steal anything. <laughs> and now I'm astonished that the distinguished ladies and gentlemen one meets out in the morning in their underwear on the roads. <laughs> Beautiful thing. Hell, I couldn't even run half a block when I started my condition. <laughs> but I kept at it, you know. We have a thing for pain anyhow. And after a while, I got up to two miles, and I was leaving my house to go give a pitch, and I caught myself skipping down the driveway. Tip, 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 tip. You know, Jesus Christ, I stopped. I thought, hope the neighbors didn't see that. My good Christ, what the hell is wrong? I didn't skip as a boy. I've been called Mr. Gates since I was 13. You know, my intimates call me sir, and I, I'm skipping. I thought, what the hell's wrong? And I realized it was a pain-pleasure principle. I had done something that was good for me. I'd been on a run that I hated. And I had stopped, 
And now the oxygen was pumping, the reward was coming, the endorphins, that's the morphine substance, it was loose in the brain, and I was high. Now, no one had ever told me that about exercise. They told me it was good for me, which I regarded as a threat. <laughs> You'll do that if it's good for you. They didn't tell me it'd make me feel good. <laughs> they didn't know how to communicate with me. Hell, once I found that out, if two miles will get you high, how about four, eight, sixteen? Within like six months, I was going half marathons. You know, I had stress fractures, both feet, bursitis the hip, my back gave out. I didn't have a moment free from pain after I got healthy. <laughs> but eventually, the body heals and rebuilds, you know, and I've completed three marathons now, 26 milers, which ain't bad for a guy in my condition. <laughs> And the incredible thing about that is I won every race I've ever been in. You know why? That's because they have, I, by the way, have no idea what happens up in front. But, <laughs> but they have categories, and the only guy in my category is me. <laughs> That's true, not just in the race out on the road. It is true in the race of life. The only guy in my category is me. What you do or achieve and what I do and achieve really has very little to do with it. I finish the race. I bear the game. I play it. Bear the pain. And I finish. And that, that's victory. And that's life is the same way. Most miserable part of my life probably in some ways happened about five or six years ago after many years of sobriety. Everything I had just went to hell. I didn't fight it because I now have come to believe that when things are not going my way, that's no indication they're going wrong. I was merely being prepared for something new and different. My wife take off, left me with a 13-year-old boy. You know, I'd like to tell you that as a result of this program, he and I communicated one-to-one. -one. But people who say they communicate one-to-one -one with their pubescent children will lie about many things. <laughs> it is not an adolescent's lot to talk to his parent, for Christ's sake. He lived in the front of the house, I lived in the back. The only time I saw him was when I used to throw money in the hall, and when he came out... <laughs> But he and I both survived. He's off in college. Four years ago, a young lady stood up there tonight, uh, decided to venture in where a wiser woman might have feared to tread, and she came into this household with the adolescents in it, and uh, been beautiful. She seems to like me. It's a wonderful thing. She doesn't even object to old age creeping on her at night. <laughs> uh, <laughs> been over 16 years, though she's awfully young. In fact, she went back to law school and passed the bar. I swore her in the other day. Uh, and on that, I'll try to, they told me to talk longer than I was supposed to, but I, I think I've done it. Uh, one of the lowest things in my life, about 25 years ago, I went into a large law firm looking for work, and I'd been back on AA, I, I mean, I'd been in AA long enough to know how we tell light stories to make people love us in AA. No one had told me that the non-alcoholic world wasn't ready for our humor. <laughs> and so I walked in and I wanted to impress this guy and I told him, you know, about how I'd been drunk and thrown my mother-in-law down the steps or something and being intoxicated fell after and got a double hernia and uh, everything, a little icebreaker. And 
this guy didn't giggle a gig or titter a tit. He just sat there in stunned silence. And I, I thought, well, I guess I'm being too subtle for him. And uh, so I told him about the time I was in four-point restraint and vomited straight up. And, uh, this did get a reaction. <laughs> and, but I could see I wasn't impressing him. And I finally said, look, I'm not asking you to recommend me. And he said, recommend you? Recommend you? I wouldn't even offer your name for consideration. No attorney in the history of this nation has ever done what you've done. Or had happened to him the things that have happened to you. When members of this firm walk into a courtroom, everyone knows that they represent integrity, honesty, sincerity, dedication in the face of adversity. Send you? He recommended that I go off and give up the law and go into the countryside to regain my health. Jesus, was I crushed. I was totally unprepared for that. I wanted to slither like a serpent on my belly out of that room to the nearest bar to drown it all in the bottomless bottle like I'd always done. But I thought, no, God damn it, if I do it, he'll be right. He'll be right. I can't take it. I thought, the hell with him. And I went out and drank coffee out of him at the old 6300 Club. About ten years later, that guy flipped out, cold sober, took the check protector, a secretary, went to Europe, disgraced his firm, his family. God, it was a mess. A little over two years ago, the governor of the state called me and told me he was appointing me to the appellate bench. As far as I know, the highest judicial office ever held by a sober alcoholic. You know what happens now when I come into a courtroom and members of that firm are there? They stand up. And they remain standing until I tell them to sit down. <laughs> All power to the powerless. I sit on the Supreme Court sometimes. Seven of us in our black robes. Six of us very serious. <laughs> because I haven't changed all that much. You know, I knew when A has a form of logic that defies all reason. I remember I, one of my, my first new A was getting to me. I was at a meeting and a guy got up and told about how the FBI had come by to see him that day. And it shook him because he couldn't even remember some of the wreckage of his past yet. And it turned out that what had happened was they'd found his name and phone number on a AA meeting list in a car that had been taken across state lines. And he realized what happened was some newcomer come in and gave him a meeting list, said, you need me, call me, wrote his name now. Guy stole a car and left it. And he said, in all sincerity, I don't know who that newcomer was, but I'll know this. If he doesn't stop stealing cars, he's going to get into trouble. He'll start drinking. And I sat there and thought, that's reasonable. And, until I analyzed it, and I thought, here's a grown man who got out and said, if someone doesn't commit, stop committing serious felonies, he'll get into trouble by drinking. Now, the non-alcoholic world would never understand that. But that's the kind of reasoning we have. And just the other day, we had an appeal that the uh, Golden Dragon Massacre was uh, tried down Santa Barbara, so in my jurisdiction was being appealed to us. And I, I'm sitting there in my court, and this guy is trying to get us not to be too concerned because one of his clients wasn't entirely truthful when he was arrested. And I found myself leaning forward and saying, don't worry, Counselor, we all realize that the trouble with murder is that it leads to lying. <laughs> so all I really know is that if you don't drink, you won't get drunk. You won't drink if you work this program. It will help a great deal if you learn to laugh at yourself. If you don't learn to laugh at yourself, you'll miss the greatest joke in your generation, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but I don't know what lies in store for you, but when I think of myself, 
coming from the black horror pits that I came from to sitting on the highest court, that's a miracle that cannot happen. If you were to put it on soap opera, they'd honk you off the air. It's impossible. And yet that's the sort of miracle that happens constantly in AA. We manufacture them and anticipate them. I would not urge the newcomer to quit if he hasn't had enough, but if he would like to stick around, there's an absolute incredible miracle awaiting him. It would really be a shame if he didn't find out what it was. Thank you.